welcome to the Living Lightly podcast, a Seeds Church podcast where we wrestle with what it means to live lightly in relation to God's creation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Living Lightly podcast. I'm your host, Connie Hepburn. And I'm your co-host, Ted N. Stick. Listeners, we've been waiting a long time for this moment. I would like to introduce you to Kenton Loby. We're just thrilled that this finally worked out to have you on our podcast, Kenton, and I know that our listeners are in for a virtual feast. And I choose the word feast deliberately because Kenton has focused his studies, his involvements, his writing, and his teaching around issues related to food. If I would now list all the accomplishments and involvements Kenton has to his name, that would be the entirety of this podcast. He is one accomplished fellow, and all the more reason we are so fortunate to talk with him today, because he's a busy guy. Currently, Kenton is a professor at the Canadian Mennonite University, teaching in the area of international development and environmental studies. He serves on a number of boards and groups, all related to issues of food, hunger, justice, and agriculture. Kenton is also a gardener and farmer, and is just as likely to be found on CMU's shared agricultural farm as in his office. Kenton is married to Julie Dirksen from Weimark, Saskatchewan. They have two children, Sophia and Simon, and they are members of the Charles Wood Mennonite Church in Winnipeg. Kenton, welcome. Thanks so much. It's good to finally be here, folks. You know, it's hard to know where to start uh, because, like I have mentioned, you just have your, your thumb in a lot of pies. Mm. A jack of all trades and a master of none is how I explain <laughs> it to my students when they're trying to figure out who I am. I can relate to that. But could you just set the stage for us? Can you give us a brief history of how you have arrived here at this moment? Why food? Why justice? Why agriculture? Why the environment? Sure. Um, That's a big question. Um, Kind of how I arrived here, I guess I've returned here, is, uh, you know, acknowledging that we're sitting in Altona at this moment and the COVID-19 pandemic and that my... um, summer habitation of New Berktal in the village in that small piece of land that we're on um, is only a half a mile from where my partner Julie's family settled in the 1870s. And so that kind of coming back around is how it often feels when I'm heading out of the city of Winnipeg and into rural Manitoba an hour south. And um, so that's just to say where we are. Um, but how I got here, you know, I was... Um, My family left this part of the world in uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, Same with Julie's family. They migrated east, sorry, migrated west, um, from the West Reserve here in Manitoba to the East Reserve, or to the South Reserve in Saskatchewan uh, near Swift Current. And then my family was up near Waldheim, Saskatchewan, Osler, Hague, Warman, that kind of area. And so that that was home for me as a kid. I was born in Saskatoon. Um, grew up in Waldheim, Saskatchewan, just north, kind of in the orbit of Rostern, for those of you that know the North Reserve. Um, my folks were from Osler and Warman, that's where they had settled, and that were, those were the churches that they attended. And um, so that's where it began, and I was there until I was about seven years old. Um, my folks had done an MCC term uh, from 67 to 70, just before I was born. And uh, so we were at home in Saskatchewan from 70 to 77 when I was, you know, um, up till about grade two. And we lived on a small acreage. I think Dad had gone to India with MCC uh, before they'd had any kids and worked on the famine relief work there in Bihar, one of the poorer provinces or states in India, and uh, had come back realizing that uh, he wanted to get his hands dirty. And so I think about that every now and then because my 
these loops that we travel are weird and strange, and you sometimes only see them best in the rearview mirror. Um, so we moved to India uh, when I was seven. Uh, Mom and Dad went back for a second term with Mennonite Central Committee, and uh, this time they were stationed in Calcutta. Um, partners like Missionaries of Charity, and I met Mother Teresa when I was a wee lad. Um, and so that was the mix of, you know, this mega city in, um, you know, in northwest or northeast India. And the intense poverty and the slums and the bustle of life, like the incredible numbers of people that are present there. So uh, we spent uh, a term with the Mennonite Central Committee there. And then came back to Akron, Pennsylvania, again following the trajectory of returned MCCers to the head office, what was then uh, in Pennsylvania, still is the head for MCCUS. Um, and were there for four years during the Ronald Reagan years, and I went to high school and middle school there um, in the 80s. Uh, moved to Winnipeg uh, in the early 80s, or sorry, mid-80s, 1984, and again lived on a small farm in Glenlee. So something was going on uh, about the rural, and I'm really grateful for that, whatever it was that was going on. Um, it gave me an opportunity to work in a chicken barn and pick eggs, uh, and it gave me a chance to ride dirt bike and to shoot gophers and, you know, all these things that, uh, that go on uh, when you're a young lad growing up in the rural areas. There's lots of other good things, too. So those, that's kind of the, the trajectory that got me back to Manitoba, and uh, I spent some time at uh, Canadian Mennonite Bible College, um, and as part of a practicum there when I was in my second year, um, went to Haiti with Mennonite Central Committee, and so you can see those things starting to form part of who you are, and you realize that those questions of poverty, justice, all those things had roots from when I was just a little kid, uh, I think, and uh, grateful to my folks for that experience, but also the third culture kid coming back and returning mm -hmm which is a real thing. I've only realized since I've talked with third culture kids at Canadian Mennonite University who are, you know, whose parents are from Honduras and who are working with MCC or some other organization. Could you say a little bit more about being a third culture kid? Because I'm not sure everybody would understand that lingo, sure. but I think it's quite significant. So what it does is. it mean to be a yeah. third culture person? I think, person? Um, you know, on the upside of things, it means a kind of a, a cross-cultural uh, awareness, you know, that you're, um, that you're always... You, when I moved from Waldheim, Saskatchewan, a town of, you know, 200 people to Calcutta, I remember clearly, like, where are the McDonald's? How come there's no Coca-Cola here? You know, all those cultural differences, as well as the sights and sounds and smells that you see, uh, that you experience on a daily basis. Um, and so that uh, ability to adapt across edges of cultural difference was really clear to me from the beginning. Language, food, customs, religion, faith, all of those questions were always very porous at the edges. Uh, and I understand myself to be uh, kind of in flux or in movement there. And then coming back, you have kids that have stayed in the same community their entire life and grown up in a community their entire life, which is also wonderful and great and full of rich things. Um, but it's not always easy to figure out one's place. And so you're not quite culturally fitting into the Canadian context and you are always kind of an outsider in the Indian context. And so you learn to kind of straddle. Um, and that works better and worse for different people at different times along the way. Um, for me, it's just cultivated a kind of curiosity about um, the world we live in uh, and an awareness of cultural difference that is just such an incredible thing. 
uh, and the cause of so much division at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, that's a good so yeah, I mean, other other trajectories that have got me here that I think are worth noting, um, or that may be worth noting. Um, studied to be a teacher after Canadian Mennonite Bible College, had a theology degree and had been in Haiti working with MCC for four or five months, and uh, then studied um, at the University of Manitoba and at Goshen College to be a teacher, and ended up moving to Asia, to Hong Kong, for three years, just under three years, the freest market in the world in terms of free market capitalism. Hong Kong is the center. It's the hub. Um, very, very low tax rates, high levels of wealth. And uh, I was there, Julie and I were both there uh, following my folks who had gone to work at a Lutheran school there, and we were looking to pay off student debt. Um, we had undergrad arts degrees, and we had this you know, perennial question that this generation thinks is the first time that anyone has thought about what's the value of a liberal arts education. <laughs> but it's a kind of thing that keeps showing Priceless up. Candy. Yeah, you Priceless. guys, are, we're all in this together, I hope. Um, and so came back wondering, you know, what it is that I would do and got a teaching degree that allowed me to teach in the States and internationally. And so we lived there for three years teaching in, well, first tutoring, um, making 100 US dollars an hour, tutoring very, very wealthy kids, mostly expatriate, like foreigners. Um, not culturally Chinese kids. And, uh, you know, one of them whose dad owned the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, which is one of the finest hotel chains in the world in terms of five-star. Drive out to their stone mansion on the beach in, you know, rural Hong Kong, which is just to say the place where people own houses. And, um, yeah, realized very quick what the freest market in the world had to offer our Canada student loans. And then taught at a Canadian school there. It was an Ontario curriculum, uh, grade seven and eight history and social studies, a bit of math, unfortunately, for those kids. Um, and stayed there for two and a half years, and uh, Julie and I made a very conscious decision after that two and a half years. We could have stayed. It was wonderful. We had good jobs. Um, but the temptation uh, for accumulation was simply too great. Uh, we didn't think about money. Uh, we were 27, 28 years old, and we had not a thought about money. We had no kids at the time, and we were living lightly, I guess, you know, in terms of our uh, costs per month. We had still a small apartment, but um, at some point realized this is, this is, uh, this is slippery. Uh, and it's lovely and it's wonderful. And we traveled all over South Asia, and Tibet and the Philippines and India and um, Thailand and Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam. And did that kind of traveling, uh, you know, dropping in and then dropping out uh, for three weeks at a time. And really, really enjoyed that. I uh, went back to India for the first time uh, with Julie and realized what smell does over the course of 25 years and how sight, when you get into a place that you remember from when you were just a little kid but you don't see all the time, uh, how that can kind of uh, conjure memory. And uh, so did that. Came back to Canada. I realized my teaching degree didn't have any... Uh, it didn't work. It was in the States. I'd done it at Goshen College, and my teachables there weren't teachables here, and, you know, all of that. And uh, so I went back to grad school at U of M, and I taught geography and done beach cleanups and worked at kind of biological diversity registers with kids where they go out and measure trees in urban jungles in Hong Kong and figure out, you know, how do you get a baseline survey done. And so I went back and did natural resource management at the U of M and ended up in India for my field research, which was wonderful and a privilege like crazy 
um, in the south uh, west of India, in the state of Kerala, which is a small uh, state that has had a democratically elected Marxist communist government government for the last 58 years, 60 years, something like that. And their social indicators around health, women's literacy, are much more in keeping with the United States and Canada than they are with their neighboring state. So it was a really interesting context. It's often called uh, the Kerala model. Kerala is the state name. And they look at that as a possible alternative way of moving uh, societally and culturally. Um, so I was looking at fisheries, kind of globalizing shrimp fisheries, what it meant to have... Um, all-you-can-eat shrimp buffets and red lobster and that kind of thing and what it meant for communities that were fishing and what it meant for kind of ecosystems that were supporting that extraction. And um, so did that and um, then worked at the Food Grains Bank, Canadian Food Grains Bank, for seven years as a policy analyst um, when I finished grad school and traveled internationally again to kind of UN agencies and did you know, questions like, we have enough food in the world, why are people hungry? What are the rules that are not working? <laughs> How is the market involved? How are politics engaged? All of those things. And, uh, yeah, that was a very rich experience, um, one which left me uh, kind of utterly frustrated with global governance and the postures that we take towards one another. And uh, started teaching in the summers a little bit at Menno Simons College and realized, ooh, I like teaching. I still liked teaching. And uh, so they offered me a gig teaching half-time, and I've not looked back since, and have been really happy to have uh, a teaching portfolio in the wintertime, and uh, starting now 10 years ago, starting farming or gardening, depending who you're talking to. If I'm talking to Kevin Nickel, I'd say I'm gardening. If I'm talking to, you know, <laughs> other gardeners, I might say I'm farming, depending on the scale. Um, and so I've been doing that for the last 10 years, on and off. So summer is the time to be out growing food and working with students on the land at CMU, and um, winters are the time to be in the classroom reading and uh, engaging in the classroom. Wow. That's, a, that's a little bit of a long breath kind of, wow. where did you come from? But at least gives you some <laughs> points of reference as we go. Oh, I love it. No, I really enjoy knowing the background. I would love to know that whole background one level deeper. Can you take us to the milestones, the markers that, that influenced your thinking, mm. influenced your faith, influenced mm. the kind of the messages that I hear mm. you proclaiming sure. these days? Sure. Yeah. Um, milestones. Again, only best in the rearview mirror. Mm -hmm. At the time, they just seem like disorienting realities that you're kind of experiencing. Um, I mentioned growing up in Calcutta. That was a, that's certainly a milestone and uh, one that I've not offered to my kids, that cross-cultural experience. Um, and I've thought a lot about that, um, what it means to be rooted and what it means to be routed, you know, kind of mm -hmm. like to moving out from a place. And uh, my sense is that, that it should skip a generation, I think. That's, if I was to be nailed down on something, I'd be like, I think it's important for me to settle in and deal with the third culture kid questions and deal with place-based questions over time. What changes when you're in a place more than seven years? Uh, in, the, in the village of New Berktal, we have people that have spent their entire time in Canada since the 1880s. Mm -hmm. Their families have lived in that village. Um, that's a very different story than the one I just told you, where you're hopping from one to the other. And so... Um, that awareness early on of being able to travel um, and being able to see and experience other things for sure is a milestone. Um, 
in terms of faith, it was always clear that uh, this is not something that, uh, that's, the faith is something that is enacted and embodied. Uh, and so there was rarely a prayer meeting in my house, but it was always clear uh, what this was for and what we were up to as, you know, working with the Mennonite Church and Mennonite Central Committee in rural India. What were we doing there? Uh, well, this is a part of, you know, if you see someone hungry and without, you know, you provide. And that's an incarnational question where you see the face of Christ in a Hindu man coming down the street. Is that possible? Uh, without, you know, saying you've got this confused and really want to tell you the truth. That was also never the posture um, that I saw in missionaries. <laughs> I never saw that in overseas missionaries. I, I didn't see all the missionaries, but the missionaries that I saw spoke the language. Uh, they had translated biblical texts into you know, very complex languages. Um, and so those kinds of awarenesses of difference were, were for sure markers and milestones along the way. Um, a decision at CNBC at Canadian Mennonite Bible College to do, I think what it was called then was service education, you know, sitting in a class with Adolf Entz, uh, who was teaching a development studies class well out of his area in terms of his history. But, of course, you know, an able academic can move in those directions. And listening to him talk about his time in Indonesia with Mennonite Central Committee, um, watching him ride his bicycle in the 1980s all winter long, before winter biking was a hip thing to do in the city at least, um, talking about not eating bananas. Why? Well, have you seen where they're grown? Do you understand the United Fruit Company? Do you understand corporate concentration in the food supply and what that does to disadvantage poor folk? Um, so CNBC was for sure a turning. And as part of that, maybe one of the more uh, formative things for me was the Julie and I had just started dating. So it was, you know, you're in this emotional flux uh, of new love and whatever and recognizing that you're on your way somewhere, you think, and then you evacuate. I went to Haiti for four and a half months for my practicum placement. And uh, at, at that time, I made, to Irma Fasduik, who was the practicum coordinator at the time, uh, I went into her and I said, you know, we're reading about peace theology with Harry Hubner and Helmut Harder and Doc Schrader and all these great minds that I knew from my parents and from the community that we had grown up in. Um, you knew that there was a, uh, an ethic that was embodied, at least uh, attempted to be embodied in the Mennonite tradition uh, that had to do with peace and nonviolence. And so I went in as, you know, a 22-year-old and was like, I want to go somewhere where that's real. Uh, not recognizing that I was in the midst of, you know, what I would still call uh, an experiment in colonization, you know, Canada. <laughs> We're not, we haven't decolonized Canada yet. We haven't done what most parts of Africa have done in the 40s and 50s and thrown out the colonizers. Hmm. And so to think of yourself as a colonizer and a perpetuator of some kind of violence uh, wasn't on my mind. And so I went to Irma and I said, I'd like to go somewhere where this is real, like the physical violence and that threat is real. This was the 80s and it was still appropriate to ask that kind of a question, I think. But I look back at it and I go, oh, she was so patient with me. Um, so we looked at South Africa, which was undergoing, it was in the end of apartheid there and there was all kinds of social movements that were gathering, and MCC was there, and there was a way to go there. Um, that didn't pan out, but I ended up going to Haiti, uh, which had just lived through uh, a coup, uh, a uh, Roman Catholic priest from a rural church had been elected by surprise, 67% of the vote, 
1990, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, um, and he was practicing liberation theology, which I had also read about at CNBC and understood that when folks from the global south read the biblical text without all of the European Western stuff in the middle, uh, which I still find important and valuable, but they had read it through the eyes of their own contexts and had come up with you know, the central story of uh, the Exodus and a liberation from struggle. That's where um, liberation theologians were writing from. And Aristide, the president of Haiti, was like that. He had displaced a World Bank candidate, Mark Bazin, who everyone, including the U.S., which had interests and economic interests in Haiti, had hoped would get in so that the policy setting would be open for business. Uh, Instead, they had this radical socialist kind of liberation theologian at the helm, and uh, he had been ousted from power um, by a paramilitary organization that had trained at Fort Benning in Georgia with the CIA and all of these other things that I became aware of as a student, uh, understanding how the U.S. foreign policy worked in the world, but now I was right in the middle of it. So milestones for sure there were things that I go back to often from that experience in addition to living in a rural setting and having Haitian kids as I walk up a rural you know, road that you couldn't drive a car on uh, yelling blah, blah, blah at me as I walk up and down the road. White, white, white. I was like, oh, <laughs> that doesn't feel great, but maybe, maybe that's fine. Uh, so racism kind of comes to the fore. Uh, my own kind of racism and what I had not uh, addressed or dealt with comes to the fore. Um, and then meeting with MCC partner, um, one particular partner who worked for the Episcopalian Church there. He was a, a priest and a little less, a little more moderate than the radical liberation theologians. Um, and he had just come back from British Columbia visiting the Mennonite Church there. And he, we were sitting in the MCC guest house in Port-au-Prince, the capital city, and uh, we were talking about, you know, the context and what's happening in the church there and all the work that the church is doing. And he was um, reflecting on being in North America. And at one point in the conversation, he stopped. I was, you know, like Mennonites, this and Mennonites, that. And, you know, like right out of Bible college, and right out of, you know, an undergrad liberal arts education, thinking I knew a lot of stuff. Um, and he stopped dead and he looked at me. Roger Desir was his name. And uh, he says, you Mennonites, you talk a lot about discipleship. And then he stopped for pause and he's like, but I've seen how you live. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, my mouth is open for those of you that can't see. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't come to terms with uh, um, what it was that it meant to be a person who espoused a particular take on the gospel that had to do with the poor and the impoverished, listening to someone who made their work in those settings, talking about what it meant to visit and to come back and say, you talk a lot about it, but I don't see it. Uh, And he was in BC in the Fraser Valley area, and some of the Mennonite churches there are pretty wealthy, and so I I had an idea of where he might have gone. Um, So that was a milestone for sure in my own thinking about what it means to, to teach international development, for sure. Uh, that kind of humility that's, that's uh, it, it just is, uh, that, that has to be when you hear that kind of thing spoken to you from someone who's living in such a different context. And to see it spoken with pride and courage 
without thinking of, you know, this is a less than member of the community of the church or the body. No, this is another part that's telling, uh, you know, the North American church, hey, <laughs> you guys are living high on the hog. We've seen it. Uh, there are implications to that. The baseballs that we're making, you know, the fruit that we're growing, everybody in Haiti knows about the United Fruit Company and the ways in which the best land was taken to displace peasant farmers and subsistence farmers so that they could grow fruit to export. And that was a way of thinking about how do you grow an economy. And so the thinking behind it makes sense to me. I get that. You want to export and you want to get trade dollars. But the costs on the ground and to people were, uh, yeah, they were generations long. And in Honduras, it would be the same story. And so much of Central America, you'd see that. So that's for sure one. Um, Roger Desir sitting in the MCC guest house. Uh, and that forced me a, a question. So how then shall we live? <laughs> Which I think is a great, uh, that I think is from Doc Schrader. <laughs> you know, that, those questions that you learn and you think you know what they mean, they kind of, they, they come back to you and uh, they haunt you uh, in a really good way, I think. I've heard it said, once you've heard the truth, it will never leave you alone. <laughs> yeah. Not that it will set you free. Yeah. That too, I'm sure. And when sure. it's a question, it's even harder, yeah. right? Like, it's not yeah. like a point in time where I can right. say that. But it's the, it's the provocation of the question that leaves you kind of disoriented. It lingers. It lingers. Yeah. Yeah, nags at you. Yeah. You've asked a question like that that nags at me. Oh, please. What Come. is development? I love that question. Yeah, my students hate that question. I mean, they learn to love it over time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this is in... in so why the, do you ask that question? That would, that's such yeah, a good question. Is, why is, is that a, a good question? This is a pedagogical trick. Um, in the classroom, I had uh, Isaac Schlegel, I think it was, that said to me in a meeting, you know, I don't think I've seen any of your classes that shouldn't end their title with a question mark, mm -hmm. um, which I took as very high praise from a student like Isaac. <laughs> Um, that he had understood and that he saw the wisdom or maybe he saw the wisdom in that. And so when I teach uh, an international development studies class, so I teach in that area at Canadian Mennonite University, and there you're trying to get 18, 19-year-olds who come with, you know, um, what's the movement? Kielberger, Craig Kielberger. We too. No. Me too, we too. Um, we day. Me to we. we day. Me to we. Me, there we go. Me to we, which, you know, yeah. is a title I like, you know, moving from the individual to the, the corporate body uh, or the collective body. Um, so you have students that have experienced that all in schools and have had earnest teachers that have helped them think about the other and how they deal with um, questions of poverty. What exactly do we mean when we're saying po Is it just a wallet full of money? Are there social dimensions? To, we're trying to open up big questions and then get out of not just the individual, not just the household, not just the community, but also looking at global contexts. And so development is a particular and peculiar word that was first used by Harry Truman in 1948 um, in the post-war era when, you know, the world had just lived through a major shaking, which is what we're kind of, you know, people have started to compare the pandemic times to, you know, war time and the uncertainties that you face and the big shifts that are going on. And uh, so the question has been asked all the way through in development studies, well, what exactly do you mean? And what does it mean for you as a, a Western-trained academic to teach a group of mostly Western uh, Canadian, many rural, many, many mostly Mennonite kids about this work of taking 
uh, foreign assistance from national governments or from corporations, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, whoever, to do work on malaria in a place that is, you know, quote-unquote, impoverished. Uh, what does it mean to be a helper in that sense? Uh, and I always leave them with, you know, Henry David Thoreau's kind of wisdom. If I see someone coming to my door to do me some good, I should l- run out the back door lest I get some of his good done to me. Uh, which is a cynical kind of posture. I've been accused of that by parents of students before. But I do want to cultivate a kind of a critical awareness of students that doesn't just dive in and say, we have more, they have less, we should share. Of course, there's lots of wisdom in that, but of course, it's far more complex. Um, We don't have, you know, 900 million or so people in the world without enough food because we don't have enough food. The problem is we're not sharing Uh, And that sharing question is tied into all kinds of things, into our daily habits, into our cultural customs, into our economic ideology. All of those things are wrapped up. And so what I really want students to get out of that question of what is development is not what does it look like in Ekwendeni, Malawi, where the Presbyterians are doing some fantastic work with Food Grains Bank funding on um, intercropping legumes and beans and peas with corn so that you get more nitrogen in the soil and they don't have to depend on fertilizer sales whose prices, you know, bounce all over the place Mm. and their input costs, it's hard. Well, how do you do that on farm with compost? How do you do it on farm with beans? And, uh, but not just in those places, but what does it mean to be sitting here? Usually we're sitting at Shaftesbury Boulevard in Winnipeg, Manitoba on the edge of a forest on a piece of land that was, you know, uh, a part of the Selkirk Treaty in 1817 that was made into river lots and Catholic parishes that dispossessed a Métis fellow in the late 1880s. Students have done that work in archives over the years. What does all that mean? And what does it mean uh, to sit in uh, a nation-state of Canada who is wrestling with reconciliation, with First Peoples? What is it? This is, this is a development question I want them to see. And so the, the development is not simply out there. It's not just psychological. It's not just sociological. It's not just ecological. It bridges across all of those kind of uh, ways of knowing. And that's really the disorienting part for students who want to dig down into the depths of you know, economic trade policy. I'm like, well, first you need to look around before you look deep. You need to get a sense of where you are. Um, and so the what is development keeps that in the forefront. Uh, And I tell them at the beginning, this is your exam. You're going to be sitting with a person uh, at a pub or a coffee shop, and they've just come back from, you know, uh, southern Africa. They're a good friend. And you're catching up on all the things that they've done, and they ask you, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm studying international development. And they have this, I write this all out in an essay question for them. And then they say, Uh, And your friend smiles knowingly and says, I've seen a lot of things done in the name of development. What do you mean? Uh, And I get them to answer the question in conversation with a friend um, who they would have to try and explain what they've been studying and what it has to do with all the ambiguity that the person who's been practicing would know very well. Um, So it's a tall order, uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But... um, I think we often move into those settings and say, oh, development means moving more money from here to there. Uh, and it might mean that Canada can do a lot better than that. Most of us could tithe more. We could, you know, all of that could be a part of the conversation. But um, it also has to do with legacies of empire uh, and ways of um, 
extracting wealth from countries. Uh, and we're not always good intentioned as a country in that work. Uh, and I think better they know that early than late. Uh, and so they don't go in with rose-colored glasses into a world that's terribly broken um, so that they have the resilience to kind of work at that um, over time. So I don't soft sell in the first year. I try and kind of open up the space that they're going to have to wrestle with, mm-hmm. mostly because I'm still wrestling with it. And I'd like, I'd like some company. <laughs> So there's so many threads in the things that you've said so far, especially thinking about your story and uh, and the milestones that you were talking about. But this, there's one that keeps on, I uh, can't get rid of it in my brain, um, and I want to pull on that thread. Sure. Um, I'm going to take you back to, you're in Hong Kong. Okay. With your, with your, your spouse. Yep. And um, you're realizing you have it quite good, mm. and you're doing quite well, and yes. things are... Well, but also seems fairly simple, too, in a sense that uh, there's not a lot of complicating factors. What is it that makes you ask the question, is this all there is? Mm. Um, what more could we be doing? How is this maybe not a helpful? You talked about it being slippery, mm-hmm. that something you might be falling into. Um, I'm just really curious because at the granular level, you know, we're, we're all... Um, even when you talk, we'll talk more about the food system. We're all making decisions all the time. We're yep. making, um, we're taking our values and putting them into action in different ways. And yep. So what was going on, do you think, for you at mm. a young age to be able to kind of put up at least a yield sign, if not a stop sign, and say, Enough. Um, this, this isn't the path we want to be on? Yep. Talk a bit about that. Is that a... Is that a faith thing that was going on there, or was it a... Sure, I'd have a hard time separating out when it isn't. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up with the same story, apparently, that Harry Hubner's father or grandfather told to his dad or somebody, you know, the when we talk faith, uh, this is the story about how we talk faith or don't talk faith uh, as Mennonites, when... Uh, Crusades were coming through the prairies uh, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and Southern Baptist kind of evangelical language. Southern Manitoba is not invulnerable to that. Um, That story is also here, and this was in Saskatchewan. And so the story goes that, you know, someone walked onto my grandpa Siemens' yard. Uh, The Siemens used to live around Plum Coulee uh, before they moved. And they came onto his yard, and it was an evangelist. And, uh, you know, the first question is, you know, brother, are you a Christian? And uh, my grandpa's first response, so the story goes, I wasn't there, I didn't hear it. I'm not even sure, not sure if my dad heard it. Um, that Harry's dad told him the same story makes me think there's something else going on. Um, but he said, you should go check with my neighbor uh, rather than ask me about that. And I've thought about that a lot. Uh, and I've heard others, uh, Harry has done that in his faith story. He's like, I'm the worst person to tell this story. Uh, it should be told by people who know me. Uh, and that's the question of, you know, how those values become uh, locked up and engaged with others in a, a congregation, in a community, in a church. And so certainly at that time, you know, to your question of what happened at that point, um, I don't think we ever went to Hong Kong to get rich. Uh, we went there to pay off student debt. And so, you know, we had $60,000 of student debt that we had accrued over, you know, multiple bachelor's degrees and not knowing where we were going and... Um, so the decision to go there was, uh, was one where we knew we were trying to make some money and trying to pay off that debt. And when we got to the end of the debt, uh, there was a natural decision-making point. So that's one of the pieces. Um, but the other is, uh, 
the intense wealth uh, that we were uh, immersed in there, which many could argue is no different than what we're immersed in in Winnipeg at a private university, we could make those arguments, um, started to feel a little uh, hollow, like it didn't feel like there was fulfillment in there. I had always imagined that Julie and I would head off on an MCC term somewhere, and we couldn't do that while we were still in debt, and we were in our late 20s. This is the time to go. And uh, for a whole bunch of reasons, that didn't happen. Um, but at that time, we were still thinking about that, of how do we, who do, who do we want to be? And I remember sitting and making you know, pros and cons lists as we were discerning. And uh, so I think that's my answer, is the discernment process was ongoing, it involved Julie for me, which was really gr- I was grateful for a partner that I could talk through these things with, and we had some congruence on how we thought our lives should look in the world. Uh, and becoming extraordinarily wealthy uh, at age 30 wasn't one of our shared goals and one of the things that we thought was important. Um, I think missing uh, the church, you know, which for us was Charleswood Mennonite at the time. That's where we were married. And um, and a community, we attended an Anglican church while we were in Hong Kong, a big old cathedral, a British cathedral. And that was lovely. It fed kind of, you know, a little bit of me, but it was also uh, a very different way of doing worship, and I didn't know folks. and So that, that was for sure there too. Um, and the others that were involved in the discernment beyond Julie, uh, with my folks were living there, and so we were always talking with them. And... Uh, good colleagues and peers that I've remained friends with until this day who we traveled with. And, you know, when you're traveling on backpack in rural parts of Asia, you're seeing lots of these things and they're kind of spectacles, right? They're, they're wonderful spectacles. Um, when you get to a Buddhist monastery in northern Cambodia. But it's also an extraordinarily privileged experience, right? Uh, and I thought, well, is this feels a little... Like I could keep taking and go to you know, Koh Lanta in southern Thailand and sit on the beach for a couple of weeks during reading week and it costs nothing to fly. And But I was also teaching with students and they were asking questions of, you know, why are we cleaning up beaches and what does it mean to have an environmental ethic? Um, and often wrestling with their parents mostly, not just with the kids, but with kind of the context in which they grew up. So I think those things converged for me. I was reading, um, you know, I was reading... Thomas Merton and folks at the time, and you know, if you if you pushed into kind of the the authors that were there in the discerning, um, there were certainly voices like that that were asking deeper questions. You know, mystics that were asking like, "What's this all about?" That helped me remember what I had learned in school. That helped me remember what I had learned when I grew up. Um, and so, yeah, I think uh, without saying it was a it was an it was an incredible experience to live in Hong Kong. Uh, and it was one in which I was fully present to my kids and students that I was teaching and doing really fun things and not any different than I'm doing now in the classroom. Um, but it felt distant, it felt foreign, and it felt uh, it felt a little too easy to slide into a life that was going to be thoughtless. Uh, you know, just kind of rolling through. I don't know if that's satisfying, Ted. No, it's, I mean, it, it, it seems almost extraordinary in a mm. sense because um yeah just the ability to often we make tough decisions when it's not going so well mm-hmm. when we need we need to it's sort of like there's a necessity yeah. to make decisions but here you were in a very i'd say almost like a cruise control type of 
yeah. situation. And you, um, you kind of pulled yourself out of there in a way and said, no, yeah. there's something more that we want to. I just, it just, I think we're all, um, it's easy for us to sometimes think we're in a cruise control kind of moment in our lives. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we have to make decisions yeah. in that. And will the decisions lead us more in that direction? Or is there something countercultural or yeah. more counter the world, more gospel oriented that we're being invited to. So, yeah. And I was still living very much in a church and world kind of theology. Uh, and I'm not sure I've left. Uh, I don't know. Right. What we learned in 134 at, at <laughs> Bible college about who Mennonites have been and who we've understood ourselves to be. I mean, it frankly looks different in Altona than it does in Winnipeg, which is great. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited about, I'm, I'm only seeing that. Um, and I don't think it always is shiny. I think there are shadows to that kind of separation that we do. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out what it means to straddle those things. But certainly coming back into a place that I knew uh, and where I was known uh, was a really rich experience without degrading any of the stuff that happened in Hong Kong. Like they, it, was, it was wonderful. Uh, and I, whenever students say they're heading off to Asia to teach school, I'm like... Have fun globalizing the uh, the minds of you know South Asian folks into teaching English, and then I smile and say, "No, really, have a good like have a good experience and do the work on one to one of you know engaging students in meaningful conversations because they want to learn English." Uh, so the critical cynical question doesn't rule the day in my mind, but I think it's helpful to always have, uh, yeah, eating like it, it's anyway it's mm-hmm. at me. Well, if you get to pick on a thread, yeah, you should pick on some threads too. From earlier, I want mm-hmm. to as well. So, um, I think you quoted Doc Schrader. I didn't know it was him that said it, but then how shall we live? Mm. Is is a question I would love to hear you address because I, um, I'm a fairly practical person in mm-hmm. nature, and I just you know I would love it if there was the, you know the ten steps for everything, the ten steps for how to do this and that and yep. everything else, and ten steps. Let's go with like three, maybe that'd <laughs> okay. be easier. <laughs> I'm a little more ambitious, Ted. I can do 10. You know, there are, uh, yeah, um, the practicalities, like the ordinary. Uh, yeah, like how can ordinary folks, like you've, you've learned so much mm. over the years and all your different experiences. Can you, can you dumb it down for mm. like when average folks like us are making food decisions mm, okay. or or even donation decisions mm-hmm. or yeah. What are, what are the ways that we can participate um, in, um, in helping to nudge the food system towards a picture that is a bit more just. Mm. And I mean, uh, obviously yeah. we'd like to do more than nudge, right? But um, yeah, yeah. You can see where I'm going. Yeah. Food is a great, I mean, yeah. I've, like you said in your intro, the food has become for me the place uh, and the work um, by which faith, by which my academic interests, by, by it's, it's, it's started to become who I am. And that was uh, at first a very heady question where I was, you know, working with fisher folk in South India, looking at shrimp fisheries, uh, very traditional gear, hand gear in backwater estuaries where they were harvesting different sizes of shrimp. And the biggest one went for export. And uh, they had, before there was a market for shrimp, they had used them as manure on their palm trees because the coconuts were more valuable than the shrimp. Uh, but massive demand in particularly the U.S. and Japan uh, meant that even 
what we would call, you know, subsistence fishermen or small scale or artisanal, um, you know, they're gardeners, right? They're not doing real stuff. Like they're just, they're just harvesting and doing little bits of subsistence work. Um, tongue in cheek, sorry. Um, air quotes, air quotes, or, you know, just kind of wry smiles. Um, understanding what's connected to what is a really important question that there's no easy way to resolve because I think we're, like you've said, Ted, we're always making those decisions. And whether I'm in the co-op here or whether I'm in Organic Planet in Wolseley in Winnipeg, uh, an alternative food store or Whole Foods in the U.S., you know, reading the narrative litanies that are on each item of beef that's come from, uh, it feels like the consumer is in fact sovereign. And we have all this choice to make, right? Uh, that's what we are there for. But how then shall we choose? Um, for me, it was, uh, that's an ongoing question. I haven't resolved that. Um, part of it was resolved in, I don't, I don't, I don't eat shrimp. I don't eat shrimp anymore. Uh, and that's not a pious kind of statement. It's just kind of, I know too much. Uh, I go into the superstore and I look at the 16 feet of freezer and I've counted it out in many grocery stores. How much volume of shrimp do we have accessible in the center of Canada, 2,000 miles from any of our oceans? And what, where did it come, who and how? Like, I just want to know those things. Mm -hmm. And then I want to know, how did it get here for so little? Mm -hmm. uh, I think we've, uh, we've become acclimatized to cheap food. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I would say for sure is start spending more of your money on food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm wholly biased in that, right? I grow food and I sell food to folks in Winnipeg. And uh, I've helped students kind of start learning how to grow food and sell food to become a livelihood activity. Um, but asking about where it, come from, where it comes from is a basic kind of ecological question. Uh, David Orr, who I always get students to read, he's a long-time writer on these kinds of questions uh, around transforming the university for ecological literacy, where he argues that you know, we spend all of our time sitting in a classroom reading about water systems, reading about food systems, reading about whatever... Um, and we've generated a generation of ecological yahoos who don't know what's connected to what. And so his question is always, you know, as you're making a decision for food, so rule number one is where does it come from? And then the question that follows after that, what then? Oh, who? And for many people, that's a... We've been on cruise control in our food consumptive habits, I think. I mean, in our household anyways, I'll speak for myself. Um, is that we just kind of buy what we want to eat. It's always in the grocery store, except recently. <laughs> you know, the, I've heard public health people saying, get ready for less diversity in the grocery store. And I felt exactly like I did when they shut down cruises and malls and all of this other stuff and air travel. I'm like, yeah, okay, excellent. Um, but, you know, asking what's connected to what mm -hmm. um, in your food choices is a big deal. And then you've still got to do more discerning. Um, and for me, that was uh, what I didn't know about food systems and food production, never mind how it moves around the world in an agricultural trade system that leaves many people hungry because they don't have any money in their wallet. We've got a commodified, monetized way of thinking about food. The reason I grow food is because I want to remember what that requires. I want to know, and I ask the same question about my seeds when I buy seeds. If I don't save them myself, I'm like, who is growing these? What are they selecting for? What kinds of character traits are they looking for in a plant? 
Is it made for growing with a big tractor? Is it made for growing with your hands and a wheel hoe? Um, you know, was, was it irrigated? All of those things. And so your question opens up complexity like crazy. Uh, and our ability to deal with complexity, uh, I think, has diminished over time. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about North American culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think cruise control has led us to a kind of a drive-by universe, right? You can drive to Ontario through the United States and feel like you've driven through the same time 18 different times. Oh, there's the BP gas station, and there's the Harvey's, and there's the Home Depot, and, the, and a geography of nowhere becomes apparent, right? You're like, I, I could be anywhere. Uh, and so the complexity that emerges when you're asking, what shall I eat, um, opens up that horizon. And I think it's, uh, I've, students find it disorienting, not in a negative way, but in a really kind of provocative way. Um, you know, if, if, if you want a really simple list, Michael Pollan, uh, who was a writer, professor in Southern California, journalism prof, wrote a book in 2005, The Omnivore's Dilemma. Read that book. I, I make my students work through it, even if it's 15. They are like, 15 years old. Oh, blah, why would we still read that? And I'm like, because he asked a really interesting question about uh, ecology in our food system. And his second book after that was really to your question. Uh, and his answer was, eat plants, eat food, eat food mostly, mostly plants, plants not, not too much. much. Yeah. Those are the rules. I have it framed. Yeah. In my classroom. That's a good rule. Like, those are three good rules. Uh, and each of them has their own complex reality. As mm-hmm. you know, if you've had that on your wall for a while, mm-hmm. why plants? Oh, thermodynamics, mm-hmm. energy in food systems. When I feed a cow something that I had to grow in a field that required inputs and nutrients and chemical, whatever... And then I took that and then I fed it to a cow and I added more water and methane from its farts and whatever. Um, I have lots of good cattle farming friends, so I'm not downgrading beef, but I'm saying when you eat plants, you're into an awareness of what's required ecologically to eat up the food chain. Uh, And what are the ecological implications of eating um, something on the hoof? Uh, And then what does it make difference if you eat grass-fed beef or livestock that's been fed in a a feedlot and fed corn uh, and finished on a pasture. What are the differences? There are major differences there in each of mm-hmm. them. And so, yeah, you're asking the right question. I don't have a, other than Pollen's simple formula, um, which has been critiqued uh, most incredibly by folks that are asking questions of food justice. They say he asked a question that is an incredibly privileged question that assumes that you can decide. And many people cannot decide. You and I can decide. But for folks that are living in inner city Winnipeg in a food desert where there's nothing but a 7-Eleven and a pawn shop and there's no grocery stores because there's no money to be made there, their decisions living on social assistance or living with single-income families or you know, folks that we would say are marginalized socioeconomically, the choices are different. Um, and so the critique of pollen is uh, one of the articles was kind of the unbearable whiteness of local food which after I'd get them to read that, then they read this critique and they're like, oh, the rules all fall apart. Uh, And so I'm hesitant on lists of rules. Um, I didn't really expect a list. Yeah, good, good, good. I would would disappoint you horribly. It's a trick question. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, what what to eat. You know, what what we've done, Julie and I, we started on the 100-mile diet with Marcus Rempel and a few other, you know, Will Braun and a few other in earnest Mennonite social justice kinds of folks that were 
asking questions of food and land. And we began eating in a 100-mile radius. It was from August until early November. So it was easy. It was harvest mm-hmm. time. And that was the first learning, mm-hmm. is that at harvest time, there's lots to eat. Sure. Not on the fields here, because that's mostly going somewhere else. And it might be mm-hmm. uh, a grain. It might be, it could be milled here, and you could buy flour. I know exactly who grows my flour now um, and where it's milled. Because we started asking those questions, mm-hmm. but it's also a, um, it was also a way for us to learn um, who was growing it and going to farmers markets and doing all of that work. And so for us, it moved from there into, well, I want to grow some of my own. We would like to grow some of our own food, and that's still a privileged position that we have. But it's also a solidarity position with folks that live on subsistence, kind of peasant agriculture, who I try and teach yeah, I'm trying to get students to understand that, but I've never milked a cow. Oh, well, it's hard to make that work if I don't have a sense of what that livelihood comprises. And so in 2008, 2009, uh, we began working on a small farm down in Wilma Wiens in St. Adolph, the Wiens Shared Farm, one of the first community shared agriculture farms in Canada from 1992, emerged out of the farm crisis and the debt crisis when farmers were taking their own lives because they couldn't pay bills mm. here in Canada. Um, we did that work. We worked with Dan and Wilma. We learned how to grow vegetables. And then we went to New Brunswick, and that's where I met Terry and Monique, uh, trying to figure out animals. And then I came back, and students were also going on practicums like that, and they're saying, why are we not growing it here? And I'm like, ooh, that's a good question. Mm. Let's plow up some of CMU's 44 acres, and let's grow food. Um, And each step of the way, we've gotten a little closer to what I would say is a kind of a subsistence where we're growing what we eat. Um, But, you know, after 12 years of experimenting, we can grow about 60% of what we eat and put away and preserve and all of those things and talk with grandmothers and figure out how that preserving stuff happens and realize why time is a commodity in the grocery store, you know, because all the processing that you're looking at on the shelf from the packaging to the mixing to the making is someone's work. Uh, and I like eating things that people I know made and that people I know grew. Uh, it changes it for me. I, don't know, I, I can't explain it, but um, I'd rather know than not know. Hmm. Know the story of what yeah. you're eating. Yeah. And know the real people uh, who are yeah. growing it and what their lived realities are and why it's called gouging when the price of food goes up and a local farmer raises their price of food to what it is in the grocery store and their people say, well, why are you raising your costs? Well, food is, we pay very little for food, relatively speaking. So, um, yeah, pay more for your food. That's what I've figured out. And then when we can't pay more, shift your life to grow more. That's, but that came through a woman in Malawi. <laughs> Who, when I was at the Food Grains Bank, I was out on a field visit with her. She's a PhD student. And she was visiting with a farmer there talking about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and fertilizer, making fertilizer making its way into sub-Saharan Africa. So if only those farmers could get fertilizer, everything would change. That was the logic. And I was there to kind of poke away at that. And I remember walking the fields in Equindeni, north of the capital, about five hours by bus, and we'd met, and you had done all the kind of international development things where you arrive in a white SUV in a truck, and people dance, and they sing, and they're so happy to see you because, like Lizzie Shumba said to me, she was my host, 
she was the project planner, Malawian woman. She's like, you're the donor. You're the donor. They see you as a bag of money. Uh, not only that, but she and, she and I had a good relationship and she could say, that's what's going on here. You're being welcomed and you're going to sit on a chair while everybody else sits on the ground and you're going to receive thanks from people. Okay, I'm going to get myself set for gratitude and really take it in. Later that day, we're walking. Lizzie's with us again. And then this PhD student from University of Michigan, a Malawian woman, soil scientists. And she's, we're on a farm and uh, we're talking to the woman who's farming two acres, right? Is it a garden? Is it a farm? Well, mostly the most interesting thing is it's a woman, <laughs> right? If you're in southern Manitoba, that the farmer's a woman is a right, big deal. That's right. another reality. So we're talking to her and uh, we're talking about planting pigeon peas and peanuts and stuff in between her corn rows because those legumes fix nitrogen. Any farmer here will tell you that. When they grow clover, when they grow alfalfa, they're trying to rejuvenate the soil. So she was experimenting with that. And it was interesting and it was fascinating. We spent an hour walking around in the heat and the dirt and the farm and hearing about what she knew. And then we sat down at the end of the day, this PhD student and I, she's from the capital city the long way. We're in her home country, but she'd studied in the States and just was finishing up. And she looks at me and she goes, I had no idea how much farmers knew. She was a PhD and she was just finishing her soil science. Which wasn't to say that, you know, PhDs are an inherent problem because I have lots of friends who also have suffered that. Um, but uh, that she had made it through graduate level work without knowing that farmers know a whole bunch of things about what they're doing that doesn't get recognized. Um, and it was at that point that I was like, I cannot with any good conscience continue to write papers about the soil crisis in sub-Saharan Africa and, you know, Yara fertilizer and the problems that they've got and they're pushing into markets uh, and corporate behavior and all of that. Because I didn't understand what I was talking about. Like, I didn't understand actually what the farmer was saying to me. Uh, and so I've, that's been my own way of dealing with the question of what should you eat is what do we want to grow? Uh, and how do I learn about intercropping in my own fields and what does that do for me when I eat? What does it do for my kids when they eat? What does it do for our sharers when they receive stuff that we've grown with seeds by Dan Brisebois from outside of Montreal? Uh, or an old, old seed that we've got from a White Earth Indian Reservation in the States. What does it mean when you're telling that story with what you're eating? And I was mostly dissatisfied with the story that came with the food I was eating. That's a, yeah. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, this just reminded me, it was was not in your long list of your, your CV mm. at the start, but um, one of your initiatives in terms of gathering people together around food mm. and having conversations is the Germinating Conversations yeah. Um, yep. campaign or whatever. I don't know what, you, I don't what, know what, what it what is. is. What does one call you know, that? It's, uh, uh, until it's, this it's a conversation. It's, uh, it's a platform is what I like to think of it as. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a platform for conversations. It's a bit like a wheelbarrow full of frogs is what I like to imagine it as. You're trying to move. You know, the frogs always want to hop off the plant, and you're trying to keep it, you know, and balance it back and forth. Um, and it came out of students and in a class where I was teaching about uh, North American agriculture, what it's done to land, you know, the land that we're sitting on right now used to be tall grass prairie until the Mennonites arrived. <laughs> and we did, you know, 98% uh, destroyed that ecosystem. And we called it 
progress, and we called it growth, and we called it development. 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 Hans Werner from the University of Winnipeg, Mennonite Studies, calls it capitalist agriculture. Carefully and tentatively, but I'm like, hmm. So, I think that uh, I think that's uh, an. Yeah, so tell me a bit about what you've learned from that, because my understanding of what germinating conversations is, is you're getting different players in the food system yep. from very different perspectives and backgrounds yep. and bringing them together to learn, to understand each other. Yep. What are you learning and understanding about oh. our food system from that, and what, I'm uh, learning. what impact will that yeah. have yeah. going forward? So like when students were explaining their frustration with me talking about the ecological implications of agriculture. And they're like, after I'd also told them the story about this farmer in Malawi, you know, I, these are all stories that you work out in the classroom with students. And uh, they're go-to stories. They're go-to stories. They're helpful ones, yeah, right? Like yeah. they help you to make some sense of what's going on. And they said, well, we shouldn't be talking about land ethics without farmers at the table. And as a teacher, you're like, well, yeah, of course. This was in 2012. Uh, and I was still... Uh, being told by administrators every now and then that I should take it easy on industrial agriculture. As Mennonites, we're part of this big story of agriculture on the prairies. And, you know, you can, you can, it can seem a little high and mighty, Kenton, uh, was what administrators would say to me. And you need, you need to keep open a posture for making difference possible. So we got MCC, Mennonite Central Committee, Manitoba. Steve Plennert had been a rural pastor you know, it'd be like if I invited you to the table. You have a sensibility of what's going on in the rural farming community just because you're living in it. Um, so Steve Plennert from MCC came. He was interested in the peace dynamic. And Arasha, Canada, came to the table. They were interested in the conservation part of, you know, maintaining ecosystems. And they were bordered on agriculture everywhere. And so you had these edges that were developing. So we set up space to talk in rural areas and talk with farmers. And we said, let's bring urban folks out of the city into rural areas to listen to what farmers have to say. When we ask them the question is, what does you think that urban folks need to know about farming? Full stop. And we said, we want to get a whole bunch of different farmers there. And that caused us to do like discernment work. Well, what are the differences here? Okay, well, we want somebody that's growing for local markets. We want someone that's growing for export. We want someone that is... Uh, a woman. Can we find a woman farmer in Manitoba who's a Mennonite? And we found Mar Grempel, and she's still involved in the work, and it's excellent. And then we want folks that uh, were farming huge amounts of land and folks that were farming little amounts. We brought all those folks together and talked. And for seven years, that's what we've done, trying to discern the differences in our food system just within the Mennonite community here. Um, the biggest thing I've learned is the amount of difference that we assumed that was between growers and eaters in the urban and the rural setting um, is easily matched by the difference amongst rural food growers, people that are farming here. There's at least as much difference there as there is between what we thought the difference was. And that was only by listening. Um, and we didn't open up events for dialogue. We weren't doing dialogue to begin. We were doing listening events, little cards on the table that said, an active listener does not rush to the next thing that they're thinking about before the person has finished talking, right? Mm -hmm like a radio host or a pod, you've got to be thinking about where am I going to go and pivot. But listening to really understand requires a kind of... So we wanted to set up spaces like that. So we've done that for six, seven years, and we've kept everybody at the table. Um, the learning about difference was a big one in that. Um, the learning how to talk across edges of difference. There's a, a farmer up by Rivers, Manitoba, 
uh, he and I continue to go at it, sometimes on Twitter, sometimes on email, sometimes in person. And when I say we go at it, we're having conversations that assume a level of trust and care for each other that are not shying away from the awkward things. Like, how come you have four snowmobiles? How come all you're interested in is riding snowmobile in the winter and go into the lake in the summer after you've got the crop in? Well, that's an awkward conversation to which he'll respond of, what do you think you're doing there playing in the dirt in your garden project? And I'm ecstatic to continue to be in conversation with something that is so, it's so hard, right? Like it's so difficult to figure out. And so the germinating conversations has, that's just one little example, but there have been all kinds. Um, And so we're just writing that up and putting it into a congregational resource now, taking what people have presented um, we've got a recent grad from CMU who's a farm kid, Marta Bunnett from New Brunswick, um, who's doing the editorial. She's, she's the editor, and she's pulling together seven years of archival work, and we're trying to set it up in a way that generates dialogue within church communities because we think these are important. Th- having conversations across difference it hasn't gotten easier uh, in the meantime. I think we've kind of reached a place where people are more and more sure about these are my values, and if your values don't agree with mine, I'm ready to take you on. And how to do that in a a setting where we're caring for each other uh, and being honest um, has been really uh, quite enriching. And for the people that stayed, the farmers that started, uh, almost every one of them is still at the table. Uh, And so we've managed to hold space by eating together, uh, by involving e- in each other's work, by coming out to the village here in New Berktal for a worship service, um, you know, doing those kinds of things together, and then putting it together so that other congregations might benefit from. Oh, uh, I'm excited to, that, mm-hmm. to see that when it's finished. Mm-hmm. And if any listeners are interested, uh, all you'd have to do is Google "germinating conversations" and CMU. Yeah. And, and there's a whole archive you can read about it, and there's also some video footage yep. as well. Yep. Correct? Yep, yeah, that's right from some of the events that we've hosted at CMU. So some of those will become, you know, text in, a, in the book that we're preparing. Can't wait. So we don't want to take too much of Kenton's time. Do we want to maybe move into the... Yeah, let's the, do it. Uh, what do we call these things? The rapid fire. Oh, the dear. rapid fire. I'm terrified. I'm drinking water now. You should be terrified. <laughs> <laughs> this is supposed to be like on the spot, right? Yeah. Okay. First thought. No judgment. Just, you know, give us... <laughs> give us what you got. Okay. If you had a magic wand, Kenton, and could change one thing in the world. Without thinking? Um, it's hard without thinking. Um, yeah, that's maybe, that was, that was too big to start with. No, it's a fair question, but I just don't have a very quick response Kenton, for you. do not think. Stop yeah. it. I can't not think about this. Ted's getting a picture of me, you know, not at all clear on what I'm doing here. Um, a magic wand that would kind of uh, help us to remember who we are as created beings, right? But there's, it, it's an impossibility, right? That's a question of faith, and it's an ongoing struggle. But, so that's why I hesitate, right? Mm, yeah. I would like us to understand our creatureliness. Uh, the wonder and the joy that comes out of that, not the guilt and the shame that comes out of you're eating the wrong thing or whatever, but the the wonder of watching a seed germinate, knowing that you saved those tomatoes and they're from someone's grandfather from Russia or grandmother who sewed it into the hem of their skirt. I'd love that kind of an awareness, right? Okay. Love it. 
at, that's, that's too long. It took too long. I'll get better. No, all good. This is what I've been thinking about lately. I've been thinking about water and drainage and swales and holding water on the land and away. Uh, in this part of the world, I think the main story about water is how do you get it away? Huh. Is that fair? Does that make sense from what you've seen? Uh, like we ditch and we drain and yeah, we get water yeah. off the field so we can get onto them quick. Well, it seems to be the farmer's concern for sure. It's yeah, certainly, yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's, I've been the last two, three days, we rented a, uh, an excavator and we're digging swales so that we can hold some of that water before it spills out into the ditch and then goes somewhere else. Oh, so kind of like to keep it around. Keep it around, but also but to not, not have it. Away. But yeah. The place that we live in when we're at the farm, it, uh, Sophia, my daughter, said it best. She goes, why did they build it in a hole? <laughs> and so all the water, you know, it just comes there. So we've, we've also, we're also mitigating some disasters and my head's been totally wrapped up in water uh, and drainage and moving water elevation those kinds of things love it lately i've been watching oh lately i've been watching northern exposure Ooh. uh which is a, a series from the late 80s early mm-hmm. 90s oh. and i don't even know if anyone would recognize any of the names and it's not on netflix but i own all the dvds and every year i go through them once uh and this year i'm going through them twice just because it's kind of uh you know, you have series that you really like uh, that help you understand some things. And this is a six-season series that is about a small town in northern Alaska and a Jewish doctor from New York who gets transplanted in a rural community and is totally confounded by what's going on. Um, you know, people that have known each other forever uh, in a very small town that's also bordered with uh, indigenous folks. And there's no difference in one way, and then there's this wonderful difference in the other. Um, so yeah, Northern Exposure. I might answer that the same every time you ask me. Wow. Yeah. I would not ever in a million years have predicted that answer. Ah, I love it. <laughs> I recognize it, but I would never in a hundred years have thought that would be an option. Yeah, I'm happy to share that series with anyone who wants to watch. I'm an evangelist on that front for sure. Love it. Uh, my next big purchase will likely be... Oh, I have to stop making big purchases. I bought a tractor for $22,000 last week. Wow. We had, uh, we had you are really a farmer if you're yeah, putting yeah, large, yeah. large that's amounts the, of money yeah. into that's, that's been in my mind, right? And it's been in my mind as I drive up and down the village road, not on a little Kubota lawn tractor with a tiller behind it, <laughs> you know, with my knees in my face. But now I'm on this big rumbly tractor and I feel kind of manly, you know, and I'm like, wait, wait. Uh, and the power that comes with a tractor that can, you know, do a lot of damage very quickly. But yeah, so... I'm trying not to think of any next big purchases, but the next big purchase in line is um, plastic for a greenhouse from the people here in Altona that are yes. world-famous plastic northern suppliers. Northern greenhouse sales or yeah. something, yeah. There's a little yeah. station break announcement for northern greenhouse yeah. sales. Yeah, <laughs> props. Yeah. Uh, the next place in the world I'd like to visit most. Italy. We were set to go to Europe um, Ted, you and I were talking about trips that were postponed in different times. And, um, we were to be traveling this summer through Greece and Italy, and then meeting up with my folks in Turkey. Mom and dad were, it's, uh, in their retirement. Maybe there's people here that do that too, take the whole family on a trip. Mm-hmm. And so my folks were like, should we go? And we've had all these conversations mm-hmm. about carbon footprints and what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we figure family's probably at least as, uh, important to consider in all that. So yeah. 
Italy was going to be the time and the kids were over the moon thinking about what they've read and what they've known about history. So, so one day? Inshallah, you know, Inshallah. God willing. Um, you got that Yeah, right. we'll yeah. see. Yeah. Um, if you could have an afternoon with anyone, past or present, who would it be? Wendell Berry. Yeah, absolutely, Wendell Berry. I knew you were going to say that. You know, we were we were driving to a land conference at AMBS, Associated or Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary in Illinois, Indiana, last year with students, and we were like six hours north of Port William, Kentucky, and students had all I was traveling with in a car had all read Wendell Berry, this agrarian poet, farmer, and they were like, "We should go, we should just show up at his place." People apparently do that. Anyway, we uh, sent him a letter, a priority post, because we had four days in the States, and we sent it to him and left a phone number. And he called one of my students back in the chapel at AMBS, and she came running over screaming, Wendell Berry just called us! And uh, if he ever listens to this, I'll be mortified. Um, but if I had an afternoon to sit with somebody, uh, it would be him on his front porch. Well, wait, he called, but you didn't see him? He called, but we could, he, he, he kind of chided us for thinking that, you know, we could just kind of <laughs> pop in. Uh, and uh, he was gentle and, you know, yeah. Uh, but, yeah. Isn't he a self-proclaimed, well, I don't know about recluse, maybe that's too strong, but very much an introvert, not in the mood I don't think to socialize much. I think he's very social, uh, but I think his social energy is mm. place-based and mm. uh, with folks in the community. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you go to that part of the world in Kentucky, you go to the local coffee shop and his picture's on the wall there. So I think he's managed to do what he does, which is highly critical of many ways that we think about land and have practiced land, uh, working the land. He's managed to hold that in a place over his entire lifetime. So uh, his Clearly writing... He's invested in his community then. He's living yeah, there. Yeah. Like he's just simply present in his community in a way that is... Uh, and his community doesn't stop with the people. Uh, it's the wood drakes and it's, you know, the trees and it's, it's all of that. So his writing has profoundly shifted the way I think and the way I live. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite works of his is where the wild things are. Oh, yeah. Just need to read that often. Yeah. Last question. One important thing I bring to the world. One important thing I bring to the world. Oh, goodness. Yeah. This is hard. Um, I like to laugh. My students like to laugh. Uh, they find it funny to laugh in the midst of, you know, kind of conversations that can be despairing. Um, yeah, you'd have to ask somebody that knows me better. Nah. Uh, you know, Full like circle. I think my own, my own awareness is, is really clouded on those things. I'd like to think that uh, it's not all dour and despair. Those students sometimes come out saying those things too. And, uh, you know, Finding, uh, you know, working at, anyway, Bruce Coburn would be the other person that I would sit down with for an afternoon if it was to be another person. And uh, he's got a lyric in his song, Pacing the Cage, which, uh, you know, has to do with sometimes the darkness is your friend. Mm -hmm. And uh, that sometimes it hinges on all everything there, right? Like, um, and so when it's not darkness and despair and looking at kind of what we're doing to the planet, which is trashing it, uh, you know, in our daily choices, we're still making really poor ones. I think if I was to speak about North Americans generally, um, wealthy North Americans generally, 
Um, I think looking at the darkness is hard. Like it's hard to do and to hold some humor and to hold some levity and to let go of some levers of control that assume we can fix what is broken because I think we thought we could fix and let some of that go, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I would hope that would be one of the things. Mm. Um, But yeah, you should probably ask my students or my kids or Julie or... Uh, goodness. Ask your neighbor. Yeah, ask my neighbor is probably the right answer, Grandpa. It's totally true. (laughs) Well, we wouldn't claim to be super intimately close with you, Kenda, but we know enough to know that what you bring to, I think, every conversation is, yeah, a levity. Mm. I've definitely noticed that. And a seriousness that um, engages these issues uh, with integrity. Mm. Well, thanks. It's fun to be here, and it's terrifying to be in a place where you're known and becoming known as as we migrate Mm -hmm. out of the city to the village just around this area and know people that are worshiping here. It's it's really lovely. Uh, It's been a very hospitable place, so thanks for having me. Thanks for being here.